Happy Pastor Appreciation Month and welcome to Episode 7. Last week I sat down with Dr. Jan Deuce as she shared her story. She has served in multiple roles including lead pastor, co-pastor, associate pastor, and professor. And her experience in multiple roles reminds us that the options available for women are as varied as the women serving in them. And I hope that you will be encouraged to broaden your view of ministerial options that are available to you. Enjoy this episode. We really need to tell better stories instead of complaining about it, right? What if we just start telling the stories and really flood the airwaves with something different? known each other for so long Mm -hmm. and you're one of my friends Mm -hmm. which you know being an introvert being in the friend category and not just I know her is a big deal I'm Uh, honored yeah see and we even shared a hotel room at a retreat yes that's right which is a big deal Uh uh-huh I let you in that room (laughs) (laughs) yeah I remember Linda saying I'm gonna have to ask her and I thought well but we've known each other for a long time but I thought you know okay Linda probably should ask So anyway, I wanted to interview you because we were talking about this before and you've had so many different positions. So you've been a lead pastor and you were a lead pastor as a single woman. Yes. And a co-pastor. With my husband. And an associate pastor. Mm-hmm. And a professor. Uh-huh. And then you just told me a youth pastor. For summer, yeah. For summer. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for like three minutes, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Start first. Talk about your faith background, because everyone has a little different. So, what's your faith background? Um, I was reared in the Church of the Nazarene and um, in kind of a revivalistic, evangelistic atmosphere. My father was the pastor, um, and uh, I remember being in children's church and at a very young age, you know, hearing the gospel and feeling convicted. And I remember one day my mom was running the vacuum cleaner, and she was actually playing a record from Olivet Nazarene College at the time. And I thought it sounded like angels singing, and I started thinking about heaven, and I realized that I had stolen a toy from a friend the other day, and I began to just weep bitterly. And she turned off the vacuum cleaner and asked me what was wrong, and I said I knew I was a sinner, and I needed to invite Jesus into my heart. We knelt there at the couch, and I prayed to receive Christ. And from then on, I just loved the church, um, loved to be involved. So from childhood, it's just kind of been in my blood. Your dad was a pastor. Mm-hmm. Yes. And... and- grandfather or no um my uh, my grandparents were all lay persons but my dad's own particular family um out of six children four were in the nazarene ministry so for some oh. reason my grandmother had four that were either married to a pastor or pastors in church of the nazarene that's, that's a lot of pastors uh-huh. <laughs> we'd get together it'd be like preachers meeting <laughs> yeah. yeah i've got like a distant great great uncle that was Episcopal priest, and that's it. There's no other uh, clergy in my family. But mm-hmm. So right now, what is your position? I am the Associate Pastor of Connection and Pastoral Care at Richfield Church of the Nazarene, full-time. Before you were talking, you were running Sunday night service. Are you still doing that? Alan and I, my husband, who's the lead pastor, we share the pulpit. Um, I do preach on Sunday mornings, and then when we have Sunday night services, I preach on Sunday nights. And I also have filled in at other churches, too, around the area. And are you still adjunct professor? 
I still teach uh, online six classes a year for Nazarene Bible College uh, Theology, which is my first love. Awesome. And uh, yeah. Is that, is that what your PhD is in? My PhD is in religious and theological studies. Okay. So it's broader than theology. It in- includes the field of religious studies. So other religions? And- yes, world religions, comparative religion is the term. And where did you get your PhD from? I got my Ph.D. from what they call the Joint Program of the University of Denver and Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado, conferred in 2013. So, okay, so I'm just curious what, but your, your master's is Master of Divinity, right? Uh-huh, from, from MTS, Nazarene yes. Theological Seminary. And then you didn't go straight from MDiv to Ph.D., so what was that process like? What did you? What made you think? Okay, I need to do this. Um, I'll be quite honest. When I was in the MDiv program at NTS, there were other scholars, and I can even name them because probably just every single one of our Nazarene universities now have one of those persons on faculty, and they've remained friends over the years. Mm-hmm. But when I was studying with those people, I just really wasn't sure that. I love the academic, but I just really wasn't sure that either it was for me or that I thought I'd really have to work a lot extra to be able to do that. So in addition to that, I also had a love for the local church, and I really wanted to pastor. And so I'd think, well, maybe I want to go toward academia because I'm female. And I'm like, no, I really feel called to be a pastor. And during the summers, it had some different experiences working in churches, and I really felt a call to full-time vocational pastoral ministry. So that was the direction I went. But over time, there were a lot of academic questions, particularly in the area of the relationship between theology and culture and other things that I found myself reading and reading and reading. And I found myself having discussions and being involved with some other kinds of things like that. And I just suddenly got this real strong appetite for wanting more. And then Nazarene Bible College approached Alan and me um, they were looking for a professor of pastoral ministries. He fit the bill for that because he had the pastoral um, experience. And I remember the one the dean said, and you have pastored a substantial church, Alan, so we're interested. But then they were interested in me because they really couldn't find a female with long-term pastoral ministry experience who also had a graduate degree and who was interested in teaching. And so they hired us both full-time at NBC. So we went out to Colorado Springs and we taught there full time for six years. And that at that time was when I got into the joint program in Denver. So kind of a practical thing in a sense, right? Because you're going to mm-hmm. be a professor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're lifelong desire, right? Uh-huh. Uh, just talk about your first pastorate. Because your first pastorate, you were lead pastor mm-hmm. and you were a single pastor. Mm-hmm. So that's yes. a unique experience. Yes, it was. Just talk about, like, how did that come about? It's a wonderful experience. When I graduated from NTS, I did the interviews. Um, I actually had uh, an interview in upstate New York. I actually had a DS that was interested in California. And my father was a pastor in northwest Ohio and actually mentioned to the district superintendent that I would be interested and available. I, the district superintendent, I don't know if he'd heard me preach, but I had preached quite a bit at my dad's church when I was home from seminary and worked for him for a summer. He said, well, I have Bowling Green open. It's a university town. It's a church that's been struggling of about 50 people, but the, the church board are all 20-year-olds. And the, he said, I think as a university town, they're more open-minded. So the district superintendent went and talked to them. 
And it was actually one of the gals on the board that had attended my dad's church. My dad, my parents only lived an hour away where my dad pastored down in Lima, Ohio. And she'd actually heard me preach. And she said, I've heard her preach. And she, they were interested in interviewing me. So I came and I interviewed and uh, they called me as their pastor. And we just had, had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, we ministered to some university students as well as the town of Bowling Green town of about uh, 35,000, just had, I had a lot of fun there. I was um, 26, and one time, I mean, when I, I remember one time somebody came to meet me at my office, and they said, it really is true, and I said, what? And he said, somebody said, the Church of the Nazarene has a little girl as a pastor, (laughs) because I was just this little, thin little thing with, you know, I wear my little suits, and go around town and meet people, but um, saw some growth in the church, and um, we really, really did have a good time, but I think I think the congregation was a lot more open. I think it was a unique congregation, and I think the culture of the town was more open for that kind of thing. So how long were you there? I was there as a single woman pastor for almost a, uh, close to two years, and then when I got engaged to Alan Deuce, who had dated at seminary, we had broken up, we had gotten back together, and when we decided that we wanted a future together, we both met with our dis- my district superintendent, and he was willing to work out a co-pastoring relationship. So by the time we came, went to our second assignment, we had been there nearly 10 years. But, That's right, because you brought him on staff. Yeah, right? I, I kind of brought him on, but I remember people <laughs> saying, he needs to be a co-pastor. So yeah, it was a co-pastor. We were co-pastors. That's yeah. okay. That's just yeah, funny. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> it is true. And um He's two or three years younger than I am, and um, I not only had some had already had some experience under my belt, but I also had worked with my father. He was my mentor, great, great pastor, great leader. So I had a real, real strong idea about what a church should do and how church should go, and kind of how to be a pastor because I really had apprenticed a lot with my dad, and so Alan really didn't have as much of an idea. So at first, you know, I was kind of kind of would say, well, no, we need to do this, and we need to do that, and we focused on this, and we would take turns leading board meetings. We divided the responsibilities up. We divided all of the preaching up and the pastoral care and all the other administrative tasks we divided between us um, before we had kids. So So you kind of got all that out of the way before you had kids, and you kind of figured out, okay, this is what I do well, this Mm -hmm. is what you do well. Except that when we had children, we really, really... I kind of had decided I wanted to be home more. And so Alan actually started to work some other jobs. We both had were worked as school bus drivers when we were first married to supplement our income because it was a smaller church. And uh, Alan did piano and voice lessons. He's a degree in music as well. And he would did other jobs and things so that I could stay home with the kids while they were young. So the way that we had to divide things again in that I always always shared in the preaching and mainly counseling and the other kinds of pastoral care. But he probably took on probably two-thirds of the pastoral responsibilities when we when our children were young. I mean, it, it worked out well for us. I mean, Alan would have days where he would stay home with a baby or when we had two babies because they were only uh, 20 months apart. He would stay home with them, and um, I would have days where I would work at the church, and that was kind of cool because I kind of had a break because I've never been one to want to be home with kids all the time. I've always been a career woman, but oh, I'm so grateful for the, the two children that I have. They're, they're really... What's been some of the unique challenges that you've had either as a woman in ministry 
or uh, being married to a pastor, because I think that's kind of a unique thing, too. Well, I don't know how many people remember John Maxwell, but, well, I guess he still writes books and speaks, but he used to say one time, there can only be one star in the family, which starts us down the trail of competition. And I don't really mean that, except it really, some career tracks really kind of demand that everybody kind of step aside or in help to be a part of investing in what that main person is doing. And I feel like for Alan and me, that's always been kind of a unique challenge. Uh, how much should Jan be working on and pursuing other kinds of related goals, either academic when she later on went back to school or um, in the church? So we always found that we were always trying to always reconfigure how we were going to work together because we wanted to be married. I think we've had challenges too, like a lot of people do or uh, women do in ministry where you have people that um, are not sure what they think of you and that kind of thing. Although I never felt like that was as strongly tested because when you're both working together and you're both in the church, if they prefer him, you know, you can kind of tell that. But that was always the thing with us is I would always try to pretend that I didn't notice if they preferred him because he was a man. But, you know, things like when we would both be at the church, people calling, wanting to talk to him, funerals, we want him to do it, um, weddings, we want him to do it. And sometimes he pushed those things back on to, toward me, and sometimes they would accept it, and sometimes they wouldn't. Uh, so there was. There's that unique challenge of sometimes I wasn't always sure that I could pursue everything to the level that I would want to because I wanted to be sure he could. But then there, then the other dynamic of actual the actual ministry and the way people would approach us or listen to us. Yeah. Have you been able to carve out like your unique aspect set? No. no. <laughs> what I've had to do is recarve for every assignment. For every assignment. Like when we, our second pastorate, still focusing some on being home with the kids, but um, what I started to carve out was I started to do more teaching for the district. And then, because we really wanted to minister to families, I did a stint where I was basically the children's pastor. I was willing to do that. It didn't, actually didn't really enjoy that as much but did get some joy in it because I could see how it was contributing to the whole picture one of my top five strengths is ideation so when I see how things can fit focus and ideation are two of my top five and I so I can often see how things will work in the big picture so that was what would always make that work well but I always would have as far as carving out at least something on the side that was a passion which was usually preaching something having to do with reading or academic or teaching for the district or that kind of thing. Here, for the very first time, what I have carved out is really rich ministry in connection. Uh, I really am the, the main person that oversees the simulation of someone to, into the church that helps them in a process of moving from being a first-time visitor to being involved in ministry, which is like five or six steps we've worked out. And Alan has turned all of that over to me. I oversee any other kinds of recovery groups we have. Uh, I also am what we would call the first responder for all hospital visits. If someone is having surgery, generally I am the first one. I assume that I'm going to go, unless Alan and I talk about it, he decides he maybe wants to go. But I would say that preaching I still hold on to, so, but not as... I've kind of, it's really been protein for me, just kind of reshaping whatever the situation was where I would step in. But I would always have, I, I would say it this way, rather than carving out always, unfortunately, what I really did like, I think I would usually find myself saying, these are the things that I know that I don't want to do. 
Isn't that true? Yeah, like, anything having to do with money, money. Yeah, I don't like. I I I don't like anything having to do with figures. You know, nitty gritty administration, administrative things. I like working more directly with people, and anything having to do with teaching. Like Alan's gotten to where anything having to do if anybody's got a theological question or something, he automatically directs them over to me. Um, so maybe it's been more of these are the things I don't really want to do. These are the things he knows I really like to do. What are you doing here that is what's the most fulfilling aspect of your current role? The most fulfilling aspect is working with new Christians who don't have any kind of church background. It it awakens the teaching and even the theology and culture piece that's in the back of my mind. I mean, I'll, I don't theorize with them about it, but in the back of my mind, I'm always willing to try something new, something different to to help people. Um, I teach a class I started calling it New Beginnings, and it's anybody that's kind of new to the church. A lot of, most of them are new Christians. Like a few Sundays ago, somebody wanted to know, they didn't realize that the Bible was divided up into different books. Okay, so let's talk about your call, because you grew up in a Christian home with a father who was a pastor. When did you know that, or when did you begin to sense that you had a call Yep, okay, this is it, or was it, did you wrestle with that? Well, I think, again, it's kind of unique because uh, my dad has always been a very open-minded person, and um, we had across town a pastor's wife that was an ordained elder, and I remember my dad having her come. Mrs. E.K. Ritchie was her name down in Columbus, Ohio, and my dad had her come and preach a revival when I was a little girl, and then I remember we had Estelle Crutcher, and I remember her, and I remember she would wear a choir robe, what I thought was a choir robe. She'd wear a robe each night with a different colored stole. And I remember, this is weird, I think I was about 10. I remember her text, the very first night she preached was, Worship the Lord in the Beauty of Holiness. And I remember sitting at the dinner table because my mother and dad would entertain her and hearing her talk, and she'd talk about early and talk about her many years when she actually was a pastor when her husband wasn't even a Christian. So even though I knew that women weren't typically pastors, it it wasn't strong in my mind that a woman shouldn't be a pastor because my dad would have women. And uh, I don't know when this came in, but I used to, we, uh, you know, different things I'd like to play act or whatever, but I used to pretend I was a pastor. I used to line up my dolls and preach to them. And, okay, that's just adorable. <laughs> and I, I did. I just, and, you know, because, and, you know, I always was kind of a tomboy, too. I mean, I'm not saying that's that's not kind of sexist, but I mean, what I mean by that is that I, w- I often would role play and like to play Army with my brother. We all had machine guns and we'd dress up in our helmets and stuff. So I like to do male things to play more than I like female things. Like my first set of Legos, I really wanted to be an architect. I used to love to design houses. So sometimes I would play preacher. My dad was a preacher. I would play pastor. And um, it was sort of like when I really sensed that God was calling, it was like, yay, I get to do that. Um, And I was real encouraged. Mount Vernon, when I went to Mount Vernon, I really had an open-minded theology professor, Dr. David Cuby. And I loved his classes, and I was falling in love with the study of theology. And he really encouraged me. So I traveled with a ministry team. But that's where I really settled it was my, my freshman year. And I got on a ministry team, and they allowed uh, females to preach. And I preached a few times in churches. And then my dad uh, allowed me to preach it. a few times. I preached at his church when I was in high school, and everybody thought that was just darling and cute. But 
So it, it sort of came that direction. It was sort of like an inner compulsion that was verified by the body of Christ of this really looks like something that would be a fit for you that then was again confirmed in my spirit. It was natural. It was a natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's unique. I think you're the first person I've interviewed that has said it was just innate. It wasn't even a, oh, hey, we, I could do this, you know? Mm-hmm. I do. I think I was fortunate that I didn't, I didn't sense growing up that there were certain things women should never do. I, I think it was unique that way. My parents are both unique that way. I remember one time my, my daughter was talking about just kind of stuff in general. We we're talking about what she'd like to do. And she said something about being a nurse. And my father piped up immediately and said, are you sure not a doctor? Not that being a nurse is, is not honorable and there are right. men who are, but I mean, it was just a feeling. I, and so I, I think for an evangelical Christians, I think, I think my family was a little more progressive that way. Now, my grandmother really wasn't. My dad's mother wasn't sure what she thought of that. And I think she got a good talking to. And I remember my mother one time reading in the Herald of Holiness some stuff about um, that was, you know, talking about how people oppose women pastors. And I wish I still had a copy of that because she wrote a fiery letter about, you know, her concern about how people were not accepting women who are called in the ministry. I, I think I must have been in seminary when she wrote that letter to the editor about that. So my folks were always affirming of it. That women are going to listen to this or are listening to this, maybe have suppressed a call. Hopefully there's people listening to it also who are already ordained. Uh-huh, <laughs> encouraged, like, yes, yeah. we can do this. So maybe just talk to that person who didn't have that positive role model from their parents. Well, I think, biblically, I think about my hero in the Old Testament, you know, the prophetess Deborah, where, you know, there was a need and it was just a compulsion that arose within her to step up and support just really step up and support uh, Barak when he said, I'm not going to go without you. And I just, I just want to say to you that when you pray, if it is a compulsion that you cannot, you cannot get past it without fulfilling it a certain way. I mean, you know, it's sort of like there's an itch and you, you just know what you need to do to scratch it. For me, what confirmed it in my heart and my spirit beyond anything anybody said or even the positive, beyond that. Because I really did, I, I did want ask the Lord the question for sure, was that there was a burning desire and compulsion in my heart and in my spirit uh, that I knew I could not satisfy any other way than to just say yes. And I think I also played this game in my mind too, which I, again, you have to remember how old I am, I'm 59, and that... I don't want this to sound sexist, but I also kind of did this one too, was I would think in my mind, feeling like I feel, if I were a guy, what would I do? And I remember I would think, there would be no doubt in my mind, you know, but there would, there would still be, you know, maybe I shouldn't. Um, so I would, I would kind of do that too, and I don't mean to be, to dishonor our sex, but I think... I do think it, that also comes from the scripture that says that in Christ there's ne- neither male nor female, bond nor free, but we are all one in Christ. And also that your sons and daughters shall prophesy in Acts. I think that you kind of just have to almost desex yourself. Kind of, <laughs> you know what I'm I know, saying? I know what you mean, yeah. And say, 
wait a minute, I don't know if the Lord, given in light of those scriptures, I don't know if theologically the Lord is pleased when we limit him based on our gender. I think we've opened ourselves up to him. So that's the only thing I mean by desexing myself is just opened myself up before him. And I think that was where that thing came from of, okay, if I was a guy, what would I do? Um, but it, so it was both of those kinds of things, that inner compulsion that I couldn't get away from unless I fulfilled it a certain way. And then really thinking in terms of, wait, you know, I cannot, you know, this is, this would be wrong for me to automatically put a stop on what I'm sensing because of my gender. I remember you saying that once before, a long time ago to me. I think it was when I was wrestling with, you know, in our denomination, we have to decide deacon or elder, mm-hmm. and elder having the call to preach. And I think it was in that context where you're like, well, if you were a man, what would you do? I'm like, well, I know exactly what I would do. Well, then do it. <laughs> <I'm> like, okay. <laughs> and sometimes we just need another woman to say, let's just look at the facts. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Now what would you do? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I do this. Okay, then do mm-hmm. it. That's cool. I'd forgotten about that conversation, but I remember it now. Yeah. Because right? I, I think you're not the only one I've said that to, but I really believe that's true. I think God really does make a way. So you get maybe the average man gets 12 calls and you get three. It only takes one. I just don't think we ought to focus on that. Just say yes. That's what my daughter would be like. Just say yes, Mom. That's it. Well, thanks so much for doing this. This is awesome. Anything else mm-hmm. you want to share before I close it out? No, I'm sure I'll, something else will come to my mind, but Probably. your questions have been great. Yeah. I've enjoyed talking with you, Joanne. You are a very valued friend for me, too. Thanks. All right. And one day, if I ever go to that retreat again, I'll share with you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this time, I'd like an invitation. All right. All right. <laughs>